Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Hello everyone, welcome to the Rough Trade Books Club. This is our monthly outing um, by, uh, well it's not an outing at all in fact because we're not going out, we're stuck inside. It's a sort of virtual outing uh, of myself, Matthew Clayton and my co-hosts Mina, Hervé and Will Burns. Can you say hello Mina and Will? Hello. Hello. You seem to have got smaller since our last um, recording. You're slightly quieter and therefore feel a little bit further away from me. So where are you this afternoon? Oh, well, uh, ge- geographically, we're in the um, in the same spot, but I, I wonder whether you know there's some kind of metaphorical diminishment of us somehow yeah. in the ether. Um, spiritually, where are you then? <laughs> yeah, we're we're yeah, we're, like everyone, I think we're probably um, uh, slightly worn by uh, by the the whole um, the whole shenanigan. Um, although you know, still still ticking along as best we can and um the small things keep 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 spirits up good so this this afternoon hopefully is one of those small things that will keep everyone's spirits up um we've got two hours of kind of music and chat ahead we've got some guests this afternoon joining us so we've got um gail lasta from the london review of books bookshop is that the right way of saying it gail or should it be just the london review bookshop the London Review Bookshop is the correct way of saying it, but everyone um, says it the other way, so don't worry yeah, about it. Because it's kind of awkward to say it the other way, isn't it? It is kind of awkward. It's a bit repetitive. Yeah, repeating the books. <laughs> um, and Matthew DeBato is with us, the novelist and memoirist Matthew DeBato. How are you, Matthew? Hiya, I'm very well, thank you, Matthew. Uh, and where are you this afternoon? I'm in Hackney, a mere 38 bus rides away from the London Review Bookshop. <laughs> Um, I'm spending my time as I w- have been locked down with my family and uh, writing, which is pretty much what I've been up to. And uh, I'm still recovering from having a haircut <laughs> that was administered by my wife and eldest daughter. They took a side of my head each. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, you wouldn't want to bump into me down an alleyway at the moment. With does, the, does the haircut meet up anywhere? Or? Um, not my head. <laughs> like if you look at you from different sides is it like seeing two different people um it's yeah two different people both of whom have a terrible haircut <laughs> okay and gail where are you this afternoon i'm in beautiful southeast london in which particular corner of southeast london uh peckham okay and where in peckham uh, tell us a picture draw a picture for us okay so i'm Nice and close to the Rye. Um, I'm looking out my window right now and seeing um, some lovely uh, allotments which are behind my flat. Um, so it's actually very leafy and delightful where I am, which is right. 
plus. And have you got an allotment? I haven't. I would love to have one, but um, I think there's a waiting list that's probably longer than I'm going to live. So, um, no. (laughs) Matthew, have you got an allotment? I haven't got an allotment. I built a herb garden on Saturday, which made me feel, um, you know, positive, masculine. (laughs) I had my wife had ordered it and it came in many parts. And that's how I spent Saturday was turning those parts into a herb garden. So I'm hopeful of getting some herbs out of it. And don't your doesn't your garden back onto the train tracks? Is that right? It does back onto the train tracks, which are really quiet at the moment. And obviously, there's not it's not the usual crowd of people there uh, shouting and fighting. And um, so it's really it's really becalmed, and uh, the birds sort of have taken up occupancy instead. And so I've been out there, and they've been doing call and response of thrilling song. I don't have the skills to identify the exact names of the birds. Uh, they're, they're Can you make a rough from hearing the same um, I, I don't know, it might be a Dave bird, maybe a Kev <laughs> bird. Gail, can you recognise any bird song? No, I'm terrible at that kind of thing. It all sounds the same to me. Yeah, I can recognise a pigeon, but that's it. <laughs> yeah, I can do a wood pigeon. I did learn, I, one thing I did learn was that birds practice their songs in the winter. I never realised they practised, right? They rehearse. Right. Um, very you. quietly. Pardon? I never knew that. Who told you yeah, that? They, I'm already too. Yeah, I mean, I read some books, and they they do. Yeah, they they move their beaks very quietly, and they just do it kind of sub vocally. Right. Um, they practice a song, and then when they, when spring comes, they're like you know they're on point, they're ready to yeah. uh, perform. I went um, I went uh, sound recording once with Chris Watson, the uh, kind of fantastic nature recordist, um, and it's extraordinary. Going, we, we we went to go and record some owls in the wood at night. And we're walking through the wood and he, he can kind of pick up a bird song and he just kind of points at a tree and goes kind of nuthatch. And he walks sort of two, two trees on and he, he kind of points at it and says, you know, blackbird. And there's another one over there. I'm not sure whether he was making it up or not, but it was incredibly impressive. It was like he just could absolutely discern individual bird calls. Um, but it was a very, it was a very um, frustrating uh, evening for me because I, I've been really, really looking forward to it because I've got great, great amount of, um, great amount of ima- admiration, sorry, for Chris, Chris Watson. But I realised the one thing you need if you're a nature sound recorder is the ability to sit still. And I realised that's something I actually can't do. So I was just kind of fidgeting there constantly for like uh, two or three hours. It was, it was torture actually, if I'm going to be honest. Um, yeah, one of those things you look forward to that's an intense disappointment. Right, Mina and Will, I'm not going to ask you what you've been doing. I'm going to play some music now. We're going to hear two different songs, and there's a little bit of a clue. Uh, and we'll ask. I'm going to ask Matthew and Gail after we've heard these two tracks um, if they can guess <laughs> what Will and Nina have been up to. So the first song we're going to hear is Zorba's Dance, which is. Um, the most famous bit of music from the 1964 Anthony Quinn film, Zorba the Greek. And then secondly, we're going to hear, um, what's the second bit we're going to hear, Nina? What's the second song? It's a barbecue song by... By Wendy Renee. Um, do you know, any, can you, can you uh, enlighten us any further about who Wendy Renee is? She was in a band, and the name of the band escapes me now, but... Um... I think she was quite pally with Otis Redding and the likes. And then she died in the early 2000s, I think. And um, 
Night in the Attic reissued this album that this song is on. So, and is it a favourite? It is a favourite. Okay, so let's hear some music. Teach me to dance, will you? Did you say dance? Come on, my boy. Okay, so that was Zorba's Dance to start with, and then um, track Barbecue. Um, okay, so Gail, I'm going to ask you, what's the what ca- uh, cunning clues have they left us there for what you think they've been up to? <laughs> I'm going to take a wild guess and say that they've been barbecuing. Okay, and Matthew, anything? can you be a bit more specific about the nature of their barbecuing? They've been barbecuing kebabs. <laughs> How close to the truth is that? They're, they're pretty close. There's so there's two different. Um, we've been having two different kinds of meals in the recent weeks. Uh, one of them is obviously barbecue. You got that right. Well done. Um, and I also bought Will a a Greek cookbook. So he's been experimenting with a few recipes from that called Prospero's. What was it? Kitchen. Prospero's Kitchen. And what have you been cooking, Will? What's been the success? What have you been? What's the hit? Well, the failures are the failures are probably more um, per- pertinent than the, the successes. Um, <laughs> there's been some. There's been there's been one disastrous um, attempt at a kind of. Well, I, I think the book might be written by. Uh, I think it might be a sort of collaboration between a, a Greek um, woman and an American. Uh, woman, I think the the, the, the Greek woman, um, from what I gather in the in the sort of the, the bits of prose around the recipe, I think um, uh, the, the 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 American author is um, is more of the author and 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 kicked up the recipes um, uh, on her, on her travels. But um, yeah, so so everything with um, so it's egg, you know it's eggplant um, as as a part as opposed to aubergine, and I tried to make this sort of eggplant. Uh, salad and um and it, yeah that was a that was a, that was awful and um <laughs> and I tried to make a kind of squash pie we've been getting these um the these uh veg uh you know um surprise veg boxes from the from the little grocers in our village and um trying to trying to just cook whatever we can with what's in there um avoiding avoiding meat and um avoiding um, supermarkets and what have you, um, right. and, and so, but, but the, the the creative constraints haven't always uh, worked out for me. What's but, been you know, the, it's what's a learning. Been the popular veg. What's your least popular veg you've got in the box? Well, the squash. I don't think the squash will be popular if that turns up again after the after the disaster um, last week. Um, although the squash isn't to blame, actually. Um, the, the normally um the, 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 the normally um blameless fennel leaves were were my were my downfall and I over yeah. I over fenneled. Basically yeah, we went off piste and, and put some fennel seeds in rather than fennel leaves. Right. So it just went a bit tits up. Over fennelled. Over fennelled, yeah. Yeah. I've heard it said about you before where actually <laughs> Uh, and Nina, what have you been up to? So Nina, you're the queen of um, rough trade books. What have you been up to? What um, what have you been up to work-wise? 
Um, well, actually, we've got a few pamphlets that are being turned into ebooks, and yours is one of them, actually, Matthew. Brilliant. Fantastic. So I've been working on that. Um, we also had some really good news the other day, um, and our pamphlet by Max Sidney Smith was um, longlisted for the time, the Sunday Times Short Story Award. Okay. Congratulations, Max. So that's and all very exciting. Hopefully he'll win. And can you tell, tell us a bit more about that pamphlet? Uh, yeah, I can. Uh, it was. It's called Without Seeming to Care at All. It's Rough Trade Edition number 33. Um, and it's a hilarious, sad, acute love letter come takedown of a very specific kind of metropolitan, trendy young business. Um, it's kind of... It's Max's short tale of bar work in London and um, it kind of illuminates the hopes and ambitions and disappointments um, that can, that can um, kind of colour young adulthood as well as the surreal tensions and madcap anecdotes that make up a life. Um, so it sounds like you're reading the blurb, Bernie. Are you reading the blurb? I'm not reading the blurb, actually. The blurb, I could read the blurb if you want me to. No, no, I think you've you've um, you've told told us enough. So one of the things we always do on this show is we have Nina talk about one of the um, pamphlets that have already been published, kind of shed some light on one from the past, and we're going to have a bit of music before we talk about um, the one that Nina's chosen. So um, I'm not going to introduce it. It's going to be a surprise. Uh, feast your ears. Okay, so if you didn't recognise that, which I'm sure you all did, that was um, Entrance, um, Set You Free. Their hit from about, what, 1990, 1991, something like that, Nina? 90s rave classic, I guess you described it. Yeah, 90s rave something. I'm not sure if I'm going to go as far as to use the word classic. Oh, come on, Matthew. (laughs) (laughs) it Um, It certainly has a lot of energy to it. Yes. And they were kind of one of those uh, early 90s acts that had a few kind of three or four hits. Um, they did, a, remarkably, they did a track with Stephen Burkhoff um, providing a kind of voiceover for. Um, but they sort of fit within the aesthetic of the person you're going to talk about, don't they, Nina? Yeah, well, actually, it was played by um, this person I'm about to talk about at our um, Christmas party which was held at Soho Radio's Great Windmill Street studio in early December, and it was a lot of fun. Um, so today I wanted to shine a light on Rough Trade Edition number 34, which is called Diary of a Bootlegger and is by Johnny Banger. So this pamphlet, shall I just, shall I just go on, Matthew? Yeah, yeah, go on. Explain a little bit about who Johnny Banger is as well. Okay, um, so he's a kind of fashion designer, sportswear fashion designer. And um, this pamphlet is one that he wanted to do for quite a long time. Um, and then I met him and he said, can I, do, can I do a pamphlet with you? So I was like, yeah, sure, send me whatever you've got. So it 
is built of uh, built up of um, kind of digital cuttings out. Really, it's made up of screenshots of emails, tweets, text messages, WhatsApp messages, and kind of replaces like a paper scrapbook of clippings. Um, and it's kind of a hybrid of political comment, sportswear chic, um, and it's it's the, a typical aesthetic of Johnny's brand, uh, sports banger. Because describing him as a sportswear designer is slightly he's kind of more he's stranger he's stranger than that, isn't he? He kind of uses the uh, early nineties rave aesthetic and marries it with sort of. I don't know, eighties casual sportswear or something. He, he loves rave, absolutely loves it. <laughs> he's 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 um, obsessed with Harris fencing that you might find at raves as well. He's 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 created a record label called Harris. Um, really? But yeah, yeah the, but, but the, it's about the sort of um, collision of, um, you know, that this like like Matthew said, the, the collision of sort of sports logos and that kind of casual yeah. um look with um with other things. I mean the famous uh image and the, the reason you've chosen it is the NHS T shirt, isn't it? Yeah, so shall I, can I just read something to you that will help explain why I'm shining a light on him at right now. Please do. Um so where do I begin? Okay. Um I just want to give you a bit of background um, about about Johnny, really, um, and one of his infamous T-shirts that he's created. Um, so the reason why I wanted to shine a light on this particular pamphlet, pamphlet is really to let the listeners know, if they don't already, about the fantastic work Johnny and his crew have been doing since lockdown began and helping the NHS. Um, but first, I thought it'd be best to tell you about a particular T-shirt that Johnny made some time ago. Actually, it was around the time of the junior doctor's strike. Johnny got given a flyer outside a train station which said Hackney supports junior doctors. After reading the flyer, he, rem he remembered all his personal experiences with the NHS. His mum was a mental health nurse. She got ill with leukaemia when Johnny was 13 and died two years later. He had buried that whole part of his life and that junior doctor's flyer brought it all back to him. He created one of his most popular t-shirts in support of the junior doctor's strike which was the NHS logo with a Nike tick underneath. In Johnny's words, some said the T-shirt was a comment on the commercialisation and privatisation of the NHS. NHS is free. NHS, NHS with a Nike tick is 1999. Read it however you want. I wanted to show support to my junior doctor peer group as the government began to demonise them in the media. I was taken aback with the conversations it started and letters received. Rude boys, ravers, friends, strangers were talking in smoking areas, telling me their mum or someone works in the NHS and how great it is. The future workers and patients of the NHS is the youth, and it was amazing to see young people take ownership of it and be, and be proud of it before it's gone. So that's a bit of a background. But um, from the 21st of March this year... Um, a DJ called Hi was wearing one of Johnny's NHS Nike t-shirts on the live stream music platform Boiler Room, which spurred Johnny on to uh, reprint this t-shirt. But before printing, he asked a frontline nurse friend what they would really like, and she said fresh, healthy foods and juices to keep them going over the long shifts they were now experiencing. 
So Johnny spoke to his friend Muriel of Street Food Traders Club Mexicana about putting a team together of out-of-work independent street food traders to service this, and Johnny would pay the weekly invoices from the earnings on the sales of the NHS Nike t-shirts and hoodies sold from his website. So far, they've sold 3,715 t-shirts and 958 hoodies, and have raised around £100,000 across three nights, selling from 7pm to 7.30pm. They've supplied work for over 100 people, Johnny's two housemates, who are now expert t-shirt packers, the five t-shirt printers at Fifth Column, the folk at the t-shirt wholesale supplier, 28 different food businesses, and each of those businesses use different suppliers for different products, so probably two or three more food businesses for each of those traders. The food costs roughly £6,000 a week. Johnny's friend Susie, a health star at the council, spoke to the trust that managed the individual hospitals so that Johnny and his team could deliver direct to the ICU teams rather than just dumping at random times at A&E, which has become a bit of a thing. Johnny tells me that they've got quite a good operation going now and have been delivering daily to a number of hospitals for the last five weeks, including Homerton ICU, Whips Cross ICU, St Thomas ICU, Lewisham ICU, St Joseph's Hospice, Butterworth Care Home in St John's Wood, the Mortimer Centre, Hackney Centre for Mental Health, Cossett's Offshoot Branches, Whittington ICU and a one-off drop to Neurology Hospital. Johnny says, I didn't want to ask for donations. I wanted, to this, I wanted this to be a 360 degree thing. The volunteer delivery girl drivers and team we have on the ground are great. I wanted to make sure this work was attached to action. So that's just one of the things that I wanted to mention that's been led by Johnny. But there is also um, another thing um, which he's been doing during lockdown, which is a poster competition that he started. And um, this came about from a woman called Kathleen from Totnes, who posted a photo on her Instagram of her NHS T-shirt that she ordered and arrived in the post the same day as the Boris letter. And her caption read something like, I received two things in the post today and one of them is going straight in the bin. She tagged Johnny in the post and Johnny then decided um, that the letter going to various households in the country has the same canvas, so put up an Instagram post suggesting a poster competition. And the rules are, if you received a letter, you can design a poster. Entrants must be under 16 years of age, so it's encouraging the youth that he mentioned earlier. Um, they have to draw straight on any side and envelopes count as well. It's not allowed to be digital, all handmade. Um, he also had a few suggestions of kids were stuck for ideas. The themes suggested were dogs, fruit, world, dance, nurse, stay home, earth, good, smile, hands, shit, boobs, rich, poor, run, willy, mega and rave. The winner gets a £500 sports banger gift voucher. And so far he's had 206 entries. And once lockdown is over, they're going to sort out a gallery exhibition and a book called The Cover Letters. The V&A have chosen to write about them as part of a piece called Pandemic Objects. Every entrant receives an alternative Blue Peter badge, which is a sports banger Black Sails pirate badge, um, a pirate T-shirt, and maybe a fiver as well, because in, in Johnny's words, every pirate needs some gold. Um, something else Johnny has said is NHS is not a charity and NHS is not a brand. Referring to it as either of these is quite dangerous. 
brands can be bought and sold. So I thought all of this was enough of a reason to shine a light on Johnny's pamphlet, Diary of a Bootlegger. And uh, just for the listeners out there, just to, to remind you, we do have some signed copies left of it. So uh, get buying. And they can get that from the website, Nina, yeah? They can get that from the website. And it can be included in the pamphlet happy hour that we've got going on as well. So that's, that's my bit done. That's brilliant. That was sounding fantastic. Um, he's obviously a really interesting character. Um, I encountered him briefly at Glastonbury last year where he was DJing um, in the Stonebridge bar, playing Entrance and other kind of early 90s rave bangers and did, throwing out T-shirts for everyone. Did um, you get one? No, I didn't get one, no. That was um, uh, his, I think that was just before, um, yeah, it was the Fuck Boris T-shirts that he was hanging, handing out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just a really interesting individual, I thought. Um, okay, thanks, Nina. Um, we're going to turn our attention now to um, Gail, Gail Lazda, and we're going to start with a track that she has um, chosen for us. So here we go. <laughs> Okay, Gail, do you want to explain what that was then? That was Wildflower, and who is singing it? Uh, so it's uh, Dolly Parton, Emmylou Harris, and uh, Linda Ronstadt, who uh, got together um, in the 80s um, as, I think they called themselves Trio, or at least the album was called Trio anyway. Um, I'm not sure they ever actually had a band name. But um, there was, I had no idea that this had happened until um, I watched a document, BBC4 documentary that was on the other day um, about them getting together, and it's just an extremely delightful documentary, loads of amazing footage of Dolly Parton looking incredible. And um, yeah, it's just a, they're just a really, um, the way their voices sound together is just beautiful. It's one of those sort of country harmonies that is just a delight to listen to. And do you listen to a lot of country music? Um, I do. And I feel like I have been more so since the lockdown. Um, I don't know why or what that indicates but um yeah I I I went to um it's actually almost 10 years ago I went to Nashville um because I was in America for my friend's wedding and I spent a lot of time driving around um Tennessee listening to country radio and it was wonderful and what music do they play in the shop do you play music in the shop we don't actually every so often um we'll put something on if we're having sort of a if we're bored basically we do play a lot of um country music when we do that um in fact part of the reason that i've probably been listening to country music recently is um my colleague john john clegg um who some of you know um put together a playlist for uh will's um poetry launch that didn't happen um right. which i which i've been listening to it's a really good um on the bookshop spotify um, account you can look it up and listen to it um, so full of world book um, country music that's published yes, by sorry. books just come exactly. out yeah um so what have you been up to girl since when did the shop close and what have you been doing since then uh so the shop closed probably about five weeks ago now i think it was sort of before the official lockdown happened um we just sort of decided that it was um safer to to close um 
and we I mean I've still been working we are selling books um what we can <laughs> and um we've been continuing to post nonsense on Twitter which is um a big part of what the LRB bookshop does they do it very well I think <laughs> I mean I can't claim responsibility for most of it because it is again my colleague John um but, how how much have what's the how much of book sales been affected what's the how how much are you down kind of thing oh hugely I mean yeah, yeah it's it's one of those things where everyone's sort of doing what they can and we are we are still selling stuff but obviously it's not like having hundreds of people walk through your door every day yeah. um so yeah and you and you realize this was something that was happening to lots of other independent shops uh yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, I feel and like... then got together with got together Sorry, with a couple of other people, didn't you? You got together with a couple of other people to raise some money. Oh yes. Um, so um, yeah. So when we closed the shop, I kind of uh, I sort of posted about it on Twitter, and a couple of people messaged me to say sort of are you okay? Are you still getting paid? Um, and I mean, luckily I am, but I do feel obviously very lucky that that's the case. And sort of this, I heard stories from, um, you know, people I know in the trade who, who shops have closed or who had to self-isolate, who weren't getting paid. And, um, yeah, it just seemed like a really precarious situation. Um, and yeah, so I just started talking to a couple of other people about trying to do something um and with um Kish Widjaratna who's a uh an editor at Picador um and um Jacob Marasevich from Daunt Publishing um we just set up a sort of GoFundMe page um to raise money for the book trade charity who um are a it, well it's a charity it's been going for nearly 200 years I think um but they have a hardship fund um for anyone in the trade who um can apply to it um for hardship grants um so yeah just after I'd say it's probably just after the lockdown happened we just set up the GoFundMe page and um yeah it's been incredible (laughs) um lots of different people got involved um lots of authors publishers other booksellers um random strangers um donated um prh got involved and pledged to match funding up to 50 grand which was incredible um and yeah so we i think um at this point we've nearly raised 120 grand for the book trade charity um which is incredible yeah (laughs) amazing yeah yeah absolutely incredible um did you have any idea that it was going to be as successful as it was as it as it had proved to be no, absolutely not. We sort of, I think we we set our first target of 10 grand and we thought that that was, <laughs> seemed quite ambitious. But um, I think we got halfway to that in a day. Um, it's one of those things, I, like, I think the sort of book community is really good at coming together for this kind of stuff. It's sort of really supportive. And I think it's one of those things where everyone kind of understands that it's an ecosystem. And if you let one part of it, go down it's the whole thing collapses so like you know a huge publisher like prh getting getting involved is amazing that you know that they want to support um individual booksellers and yeah it's just yeah it's been brilliant and did, did when you were growing up did you have a bookshop that was your kind of favorite place or 
have you had them before um, before you joined kind of the um, bookshops to work in them? Um, I always I've always been sort of went to bookshops um, and I, I sort of I had a local independent bookshop where I grew up um, and I my the story of how I became a bookseller or how I realized I wanted to become a bookseller is incredibly embarrassing because I as a sort of stupid 14 year old I watched Notting Hill and decided that that was the that was the <laughs> life for me um, and yeah living my teenage dreams now so and where was where was your first job uh, my first job was at Blackwells in Oxford um, right. in the fiction department there. And then I worked, I moved to London and worked at Foils for five years and then, yeah, been at the LRB since then. So it says on your, um, in the little biog about you on the London Review um, bookshop website, it mentions that there was a, a method of arranging books on tables <laughs> named after you at Foils. I'm not sure. Right? I'm not sure that's true anymore because I don't think anyone still works at Foils that would remember me well enough. Um, but there was a sort of a method that I devised that had like four point rotational symmetry for laying out tables. It was beautiful. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're also responsible for the windows, I believe. Um, I am, yes, at the, at the LRB, yes. Um, and not at the moment, you, obviously. But yeah. Is that something you enjoy doing? It is, yeah. It's good fun. Um, I have done some ridiculous things i built a straw bear to celebrate um a folk art exhibition that was happening which i mean it's it's fun that they that they let me spend my working day doing foolish things like that but um yeah it's good fun yeah it looked wonderful i saw that where did you get the straw from um in uh do you know Vauxhall city farm yeah i took a took a cab to Vauxhall city farm to pick up a bale of hay right, fantastic um <laughs> And if you were in the shop and I was walking in this afternoon and uh -huh. was asking for a recommendation of what I would, should be reading right now of stuff that's kind of come out recently, yeah. what would you point me towards for kind of fiction and non-fiction? Um, I think I would point you towards um, Nisha Dolan's new book, Exciting Times, okay. um, which is a novel. Um, she's a young Irish writer. Um, it's a debut. Um, I... I don't. I feel like a lot of people have been saying this, but I've been having real problems reading <laughs> during lockdown. Right. I kind of. I look. I when when it start, first started, I was like, I'm gonna have all this time to sit and read everything that I've been meaning to read. Um, and I my concentration is just completely gone, basically. So that hasn't happened. But there's like there's been a couple of books that have really like broken through my um, inability to concentrate on anything. And exciting times is one of them. Um, it's about a young woman who's living in Hong she's an, a, a young Irish woman living in Hong Kong um, sort of teaching English um, not really sure what to do with her life um, and it's just it's sort of very funny and fast and um, yeah it's just a really exciting first book and I I mean it's a terrible thing to say when someone's literally just published their first book but I can't wait to see what she does next right. um, yeah and who's published it? Can you remember? Uh, it's WNN. Okay. Um, and it's Nisha Dolan. Did you say is that the right? Have I got uh, the Nisha name? Dolan, yeah. Nisha Dolan. Um, anything else that's caught your eye? Um, I feel like the other things I've been like able to read are sort of, I guess, kind of comfort reads that I've gone back to. Um, so I read a Georgette Heyer novel, which I feel like is, I don't know whether you've ever read any Georgette Heyer, but 
She needs I never so have much. Actually. <laughs> um, I mean, it doesn't appeal to everyone. She wrote a lot of Regency romances as the main thing she's famous for. I think she wrote about, I, I don't know how many, but like probably over 100. She was extremely pr prolific. Um, but they're just very fun and silly. Um, and whenever I'm in a secondhand bookshop, I always look out for the old, um, you know, the old pan paperbacks that have like, mm. they all just look like sort of um, like really pulpy covers. Um, and they have, yeah, are they, are they paintings on them? Are they kind of like yeah, exactly. Look, they all look like they're uh, paintings of Bath. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and they're just um, really good fun. I read one called Regency Buck, um, which is it's just it's just very silly, very silly Regency romance. But I think really well written, and she's one of those authors that sort of gets. Uh, worse press than she probably deserves because you know she wrote for women and who cares about people who write for women um but i think she's yeah good fun worth reading yeah i think there are lots of people that are kind of um secret or not so secret georgia hair fans <laughs> um, I've, I've encountered a number over the years i'm sure i, I should read them i never have but they are they're one of those things that you always see in charity shops that you see at Jumble yeah, exactly. um, There's a really good um, backlisted, one of the early backlisted episodes about um, Georgia Heyer, which um, I think sort of illustrates how good she is quite well. Yeah, I can remember. I can remember that happening. Um, OK, Gail, thank you for that. That was really wonderful. Um, and congratulations on your campaign. Um, yeah, thank you. And thank you to um, everyone who donated. It was in incredible. Yeah, and I look forward to the shop being open again. Um, which yeah, me too. <laughs> too far away. Um, yeah, we're going we're to turn our attention now to, um, to Will Burns, who is once again in Poetry Corner. Um, the thing that I've been reading most recently, and I, I kind of agree with Gail, it is a kind of strange time to try and concentrate on a book, but I sort of made, made a bad mistake, really, of reading the Mark Lanigan autobiography <laughs> over the weekend, um, which is an absolutely extraordinary book. That is sort of wildly, um, not depressing is not the right word. What, how do you describe it, Will? Uh, yeah, no, it's, it is strange, isn't it? And um, perhaps, um, you know, not, not the most, um, well, the opposite of a comfort read, that's for sure. Um, okay. and, and, and probably, probably, yeah, inadvisable to take it on in, 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 during a period of sort of other, other stresses and, uh, and anxieties. But uh, yeah, I was, I was, it was the same for me, really. I read it during that first week or or so of of, of really warm weather, and found myself, you know, um, having a kind of simultaneous experience of this r really quite remorseless, um, bleak book, um, and uh, and a sort of the, the suburban idyll of my surroundings yeah very quite a strange quite a strange experience really but it, yeah. it's, it's a book unlike any other really I, I think isn't it yeah I agree so it's a book that sort of charts his 10 or first 10 or 15 years mainly in the it concentrates in that period in the music business he was the lead singer for Screaming Trees and then has enjoyed a kind of um a, a, a solo career afterwards but the books particularly looks at um yeah, this period where he moves to Seattle and becomes a junkie um, and then documents his decline, really, isn't it? And I think you said it very well in your review of it on Caught by the River, where you said it's kind of, there's no upward trajectory. 
no. Um, I, I, I mean, partly I think that's the, 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 the period that he focuses on. So the, the book finished, the book finishes with him at about, about 33, I think. And, and really, you know, he, he, he's had a, he's had a slight up, um, tilt since, since then, um, you know, his solo careers had, had a, 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 a um, a couple of you know real high points since then, um, and and he had his period where he was in the Queens of the Stone Age as well, which sort of um, gave him a, another lease of life, if I'm allowed to use a hackneyed old phrase. But um, but yeah, that that period is really um, you know he sort of starts the book with a, a modicum of kind of uh, indie rock fame, and it and it really travels downhill sharp from there, um, and for most of the most of the kind of narrative uh, time in the book, he, he's more of a local drug dealer than a, than a rock singer really. Um, yeah. And kind of resents going off on tour because it's, because it, because he's worried about his income and things like that. And it's quite, it, I mean, yeah, it's, it's the, uh, honesty is a, is a word that's used a lot to describe that genre of, um, you know, rock memoir, but, um, but the, it's, it's pretty, it is pretty honest that that, that yeah they're very rarely honest i think for kind of simple reason that they're normally talking about people that are um alive uh, mm. and most publishers would have a kind of fit about um naming other people in books doing illegal things um but he, he does that kind of all the way through talks about all the people in the crew who are also strung out when he was that he's kind of um going off to kind of remote corners of cities to try and score with, um, which, again, is something you just don't normally find. And although there is some kind of, you know, at the end, he does, um, he ends up in uh, rehab. It's a very, it's a very harrowing journey. I think there's particularly the one passage towards the end where he's describing trying to go and score in Amsterdam. Um, that is just awful. Just yeah. this kind of relentless attempt by him to find more money, get into the centre of town. Then he gets mugged, then he gets ripped off. Um, yes, and the, and the kind of sickness is kind of coming on him. It's, yes, yeah, I, I find that bit particularly um, fantastic. Really fantastic piece of writing, I thought. Yeah, I th- yes, the, the combination of the kind of horror show of the of the of the experiences, but but the, but he somehow manages to find a kind of um, a gallows humour and a and a prose style that that keeps you that that, that, that keeps you sort of not interested isn't the word, but you know it keeps, makes it compelling, I, I, I guess. So let's, I mean, let's listen to Stockholm City Blues now, which is the track that you've chosen. Why did you choose this track, Will? Uh, well, uh, you, um. He's got a new record coming out on Friday, um, and this is the second. I don't, I don't know if people call them singles anymore, um, but it's the second track that they've uh, that they've that the record label Heavenly have, have put out um, from the new record. Uh, it sounds great to me, and um, I've heard really good things about the new album. Uh, you know that it's going to be that it's a, a, a you know a real uh, classic in his canon so um yeah i just thought it seems apposite to to play a new one really yeah and i think this is and this really is a kind of song of the book and when you um read the book with its kind of relentless kind of last exit to brooklyn style grimness 
and then you listen to a song like this, which is very beautiful, but really describes um, describes the kind of contents of the book, particularly kind of him in a hotel room in a new city, trying to go to a corner to score drugs. Um, let's listen to it then. Stockholm City Blues. <laughs> Okay, so lyrically, um, Will, because that's your your that's particularly why we've you're in poetry corner. Lyrically, what do you <laughs> think that he um, what does he remind you of? Can you see any kind of poetry comparisons with his writing? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it, it, uh, he he on the the launch night for the book, you know, he was asked the question. It, it was a there was a Twitter um, Q and A that he had, um, and he was asked what. Um, uh, which to um, he was asked to to, to name a, a you know a dinner party uh, guest lineup um, and and he was allowed two dead poets and he chose um, Robert Lowell uh, as one of them and um, you know I think even though you can't necessarily see a stylistic um, uh, kind of um, continuation from from Lowell to, to Lanning and I think they share a sensibility in their um, I mean, we've talked about the, the, the kind of brutality of Lanigan's honesty in his book, um, his use of, uh, you know, friends and um, colleagues and peers, um, stories, uh, and, and, and um, obviously Lowell famously um, utilised his own life and the life of, of his, um, his supposed loved ones or, or you know, or... or or um, wives and and friends um, in his in his in his own poetry, um, particularly. And who, and who was Robert Lowell? And I don't know anything about him. I am obviously the kind of um, poetry yeah. ignoramus. So. No, sorry, I should I should have uh, I should have said that. Yeah, it's a, just sort of um, you know American um, poet. You know, one of the the big heavyweights of American poetry um, in the last century. Um, and he, he, so so the. The, the famous uh, incident was he, he published a, a book called The Dolphin, which was um, in which he used uh, letters from his um, then wife, the writer Elizabeth Hardwick. He changed some of the letters, um, and it was a big, um, it was a you know contentious move really, um, and it it, it it solicited a, a rebuke from his longtime um, uh, correspondent. Um, Elizabeth Bishop, um, and actually uh, th there was a book of the, the letters between Hardwick and Lowell um, published um, last year. I, th I think it came out last year, um, uh, which was called The Dolphin Letters, um, edited by Saskia Hamilton. And um, uh, yeah, but I, I, I see that kind of honesty uh, and the kind of the risks that that, that, that sort of honesty um, when used for artistic purposes and maybe even bastardised for artistic purposes, I can see a similarity between the two. Uh, and it, it, it wasn't a surprise, put it that way, when um, it's not a surprise to find out that Lanigan's a fan of, of Lowell's. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, they play a similar, very, da very very dangerous game, I think. 
he has the his voice. I think you can also the the lyrics and his voice seem to go very well together, and he has a kind of very rich baritone voice with a sort of limited range, um, not dissimilar to kind of Johnny Cash. Um, and his uh, way he uses words is also kind of very spare as well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, it's that it's that that kind of thing that some songwriters are able to access, which is similar to, to, to poets in that they, they've they managed to kind of turn some aspects of language into their own. Um a poet called Richard Hugo writes really well about that in um in some of his published um lectures, um uh, book called Triggering Town, which I don't have in front of me so I can't pull the exact quote, but he talks about people taking ownership of the poets taking ownership of language, um, certain words that become yours and you know that power that you then impart um and lanigan does lanigan does that you know there's certain um, motifs that turn up in his songs and in the case of singers i think the the, the voice you know the, the the fact of the voice singing um it, it, is another element in, of, of that really obviously as a as a poet you don't necessarily have that um and so you have to make the language work in a slightly different way um singers especially great ones like mark are um are blessed with it with or, or you know or cursed depending on how you see it but you know they've got another they've got another trick that they can perform which is to to sing he has that um there's that wonderful um johnny cash anecdote that i think you mentioned in court by, or you mentioned in the court by river review uh yeah john i think they met uh, Mark Lanigan opened for Johnny Cash on some of the shows that he did for those American Recordings albums, the ones that came late in Cash's career, the Rick Rubin produced yeah. ones. Um, and Lanigan had always been a bit re reluctant, I think, to tour the solo records that he made, um, but he, he, he had to do the Johnny Cash um, shows. You know, it was a, a, a sort of um, an obvious... Uh, thing that, 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 that you couldn't turn down and um so but they met subsequently later and i think johnny said something like i can't remember your name son but i sure do remember your singing you nearly showed me up on those shows back there and um it, it, the, the book's full of lanigan's kind of like you can see that there's still these moments where he's uh where he you know he's in the presence of people that he loves or respects waylon jennings is another one and it, he finds himself still surprised that those moments that happened to to him because he still can't really believe that he was worthy of of, of, of them. Yeah, he's, the, the book is completely, um, well, it's set up essentially by the self-loathing that he has and lack of self-worth that he has um, mm. because of his upbringing, really, because of his relationship with his parents. Yeah. Um, I, I thought that, I, I think the, the other thing that's interesting about it is his, his parents obviously were very bad parents, but they're both teachers, weren't they? They're both teachers, which is slightly unexpected that they would be people that are looking after other children, but they were so bad at looking after their own. Um, yeah. I found that kind of upsetting as well. Yeah, I mean, it did, you know, the, the, the relationship with the mother particularly just seems, although, you know, the, 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 the father's damned by his absence, I think. Yeah. Um, but the, yeah, the relationship with the mother seems, seems particularly brutal and like yeah like you like you say you, you, you wonder um yeah you do wonder about the the, the the nature of the the calling to teach if it's uh <laughs> if it's full yeah. of people who have that level of uh hatred for their own children 
Yeah. So it so that is um uh so it's Mark Lanigan's book. It's called Singing is it called Singing Backwards, is that the right title? Yes, yeah, Sing Backwards and Weep. Sing Backwards and Weep, and it's published by White Rabbit Books, which is um our friend and colleague Lee Braxton's new imprint that he started with um Orion Books and it came out a couple of days ago and the album's due out, is it next week, something like that, Will? I think on Friday. Okay, on Friday. I'm really looking forward to listening to it. Um, yeah. Uh, so the song we listen to is kind of Stockholm City Blues, and um, we're going to play now a piece of music that Matthew's chosen, that Matthew has chosen, which I think is also kind of um, a sort of cityscape record. Um, it, it, it feels like that way anyway, which is the burial track, Hiders, um, which feels like a very much a kind of London record. So we're going to start by listening to that. Okay, so that was Hiders um, by Burial. So, Matthew, I know you've been a fan of Burial for quite a long time. What what was the first thing that you kind of, what attracted you first about the uh, musician they call Burial? The first thing, when you listen to it, it, you know, it feels like you're sat on a commuter train rolling through uh, London, elevated, yeah. looking out into people's bedrooms and, the you know, the, the sort of, the bedroom lights in the night time and it has that uh, atmosphere to it and then his work has just got more and more interesting uh you know the eps that he released uh in quick se- you know in sequence uh over the sort of last decade just deepened my appreciation of them and um you know i found the music very moving intensely moving actually and also i thought it was appropriate now so many people are sort of isolated so i've chosen music that's from artists who are working on their own Right. Right. And his music feels intensely like the product of his own uh, worldview, you know. Yeah, there's a wonderful, I read a wonderful interview with him once where he, um, uh, or maybe it was an interview, so I'm not even sure he gives interviews, but it was something explaining that some of the, the vocal um, samples that he uses are simply clips of the amateur singers have uploaded, uh, uploaded onto YouTube um, that, you know, have been watched by like eight people that he has kind of searched down and then takes their voice and kind of manipulates it, um, which I thought was kind of wonderful and fantastic and strange and not what most people normally do. Um, he's really yeah, it's got a great... Artist. They've got a great fragility to them by taking those found fragments. Yeah. Uh, that that's part of, as you say, part of what it is so uh, moving about it is it feels like the voices are breaking or breaking open and they feel more vulnerable. So, Matthew, you are the um, author of three science fiction novels, um, The Red Men, The Destructors, and If Then. Um, and that's kind of one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show, is to try and get the perspective of a science fiction novelist um, living through the pandemic, um, to try and understand how science fiction's kind of uh, approached subjects like this in the past. Um, what, what, can, what light can you throw us on that, um, Matthew? Um, I, well, you know, as a science fiction author, I certainly never expected the apocalypse to be this bourgeois, you know. Um, 
know, which I know it isn't for, you know, it's about 50% of people who are sort of uh, in a middle-class lockdown and 50% of people who are supporting us through their work in the you know, infrastructure and public services. I don't think we anticipated the lack of um, consensus. I think, as I'm interested in, in, like, for example, you know, if you'd have made a science fiction film in which the government had reacted to the pandemic in the way they actually have reacted in in, in UK and America, you wouldn't have believed it, right? Because we we project such competence into yeah. authority, and it wouldn't work dramatically to have, you know, a, a, a government that was kind of indifferent to the end of the world in the same way. Um, I was thinking about a lot about pandemics in science fiction are often used as transitions. They're they're often in the backstory, actually. Right. You know that. The, the subject, a pandemic is so, um, was so likely, right? It was so probable that it wouldn't really attract a science fiction writer. We could be prefer possible improbabilities more than the high likelihood of a pandemic. A pandemic would belong more in what you call like a, a, a techno thriller or, yeah. a, you know, anything that's, yeah. yeah, it basically has, just feels exactly as the real world is, where a science fiction has a level of strangeness that it pursues, right? But it tends to use pandemics as, in the backstory, that the transition period between the strange world of science fiction you're reading and the world that you know as a reader. And the pandemic is a portal between them. And I saw um, uh, Arundhati Roy mentioned use the word portal in relationship to the pandemic when she was speaking about it recently. And so it's it's a, obviously when you have the cessation of normal life, presents uh, lots of thoughts of opportunities about what might come and when you restart it. And this is the moment in which we're, you know, considering those possibilities. Hopefully we'll be able to make something positive out of it. And is it something that you have, um, that you would write about in the future? Would you ever write about this period, do you think? Does it attract you as a writer or not? Um, It attracts me uh, if I was writing memoir. Uh, certainly, my experience of it's been so limited because it's you know you know I'm just locked in my house, yeah. right? <laughs> I have very minimal uh, like experiential elements to it that I could uh, get out of fiction at the moment. I mean, I, I I was sat there. You mentioned earlier, like I live next to a railway station, and now and again there are a few people I can hear out there who will feel like they're on their own. They don't realize that I'm standing behind listening to them, and they often sing like rap songs with their headphones on, blaring it out. Uh, singing full gusto in what they think is an empty tra- you know, train station. Right. Uh, that's like something from Burial Song. Yeah. I like the, um, you know, I remember the, one of the early days from the lockdown. It's very intense here because I'm in Hackney. I'm on the, the road with the hospital. The ambulances run into Homerton Hospital. And I can, you know, when the ambulances were passing very frequently, it did feel, you know, it felt very intense. Um, and I sort of went out in the garden for some relief from that. And uh, there was a fat moon out and a Chinook helicopter crossed in front of the, this enormous uh, super moon. And that felt like, you know, being entirely in the future. Yeah. The future, you know, I didn't really want to, it wasn't as much fun as maybe I'd anticipated it being. Yeah, both, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's strangeness is its, is its banality, really, isn't it, I think? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's I, as I said, I've been very lucky in it. I've got my family here. I, you know, I don't have loads of elderly relatives. We're just locked down here, and that's fine. You know, 
Uh, and so we, you know, some of it also has kind of comedy to it. And some, you know, I, I, my ability, I, I went out on my bicycle and managed to buy some bread flour. That was probably my greatest achievement of the year uh, during the lockdown. So actually get uh, bread flour for by going to a pizza restaurant and bargaining with them. Right. Uh, that was open, and then eventually I got I got so much bread flour delivered in my back kitchen looked like the final act of Goodfellas. <laughs> Why, and where's your where are your parents going? Where's your dad? Is he in Spain still, or is he back? Oh, my dad is uh, yeah, my dad's in lockdown in uh, Spain. He hasn't been barely out of a caravan, so he's be, he's out there at the moment. And and is he happy? Is he all right on the, in the caravan side? Um, yeah, he seems he seems chipper. We're doing a kind of family quiz together on Friday nights. Uh, not just him, but all all the other various different people I'm related to, um, and we're sort of. Each, each winner takes the turn to do the quiz on a Friday night. That's one of the ways in which we're keeping in touch. Um, generally, what you, when you speak to people, you know, you ask them, like, what are you doing? What are your plans, right? And that, as a conversational gambit, has been completely removed, right? You don't want to talk to people about what they're planning on doing because we don't really have any plans, right? We're entirely responsive. So it's these different family interactions which no one really talks about it, right, because we, we, we're doing the quiz to get away from it and equally we don't want to uh or project ourselves and speculate into what's going to happen in the future we have to you know live in the present and that atmosphere reminds me very much of like you know if you've ever been in a room where somebody's giving birth or even in a room where somebody's dying you never sort of want to talk about what you're going to be doing tomorrow or the next day or the next <laughs> week you know you yeah. just have to like because you don't want to speculate right because your life's yeah. about to change massively yeah. one way or the other and so you just have to make quite banal conversation about the present moment. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true, actually. That's very true. My um, So my 90-year-old dad, who lives like um, 10 or 15 miles away from me, has sort of been behaving like he's been given the kind of freedom of the city or um, <laughs> the freedom of the village. Um, the, yeah, lockdown, the state of lockdown hasn't necessarily... Um, seems to have been something that everyone else has endured uh, and he hasn't. He was very delighted this week that the local Tesco's had um, had reopened um, and was having like a special kind of um, old person's hour that he was travelling to. In fact, a couple of weeks ago I spoke to him, he'd been to three different supermarkets that day, um, which, was just, which was just completely crazy. Um but so, yes, I've been having those kind of conversations with him that veer between, you know, the banality of talking about his garden to like, you know, what the hell are you doing? Um, which you can't really have, really, because um, it's difficult conversations to have, I think. Um, but thinking of isolation, though, um, your most recent book, which was Self and I, um, which is your memoir of your time when you're in your early 20s of living as a kind of assistant, living assistant to Will Self included a period of isolation and um, where you lived on your own in Suffolk really you're kind of in his house but he was very rarely there what was that like you were very young at the time yeah I was um 22 I think um and I was on my own for about six weeks in this house um in a village called Noddishaw um and uh, occasionally someone once a week someone came around to maybe do the garden and I'd chat with the gardener uh, about I mean, it was quite a modest cottage, but the landlady liked the garden to be kept clean. And I chat with him about his 
Uh, he likes to hunt geese at uh, certain times of the year and he'd shoot them and fill his freezer up with them. Right. Uh, he was very proud about it. He never went to a supermarket. Um, I wonder how he's getting on in the lockdown because he could always feast on uh, you know, the goose he bagged um, or the rabbits he'd put in. And then also now and again, uh, you know, someone will come over and clean. But that was about it. That was the full extent of my social interaction. So I lay around listening to the radio. We didn't have a television. Uh, will was very adamant that there was to be no TV in the house. And this is pre-internet, of course. So, yeah, it was a radio and a collection of books. And inch by inch, in ways you don't really notice, you drift away from social consensus. That's how I would put it. And so by the end of it, I sort of, it's going to sound rather coarse, but, you know, I just sort of developed these habits. I'd like to urinate outdoors. You know, I'd sort of become a little more of an animal. Uh, and then like, after after six weeks of it, I, I went to see my uh, girlfriend, now wife, in Acton. And she was having a dinner party. And, you know, I sort of got up in the middle of the dinner party, went out to the garden and, you know, urinated all over the patio. <laughs> um, and how did the... I just... <laughs> Yeah, I, I just and just looking at the people like they're, they're making faces, and I just kind of drifted away. And I think sometimes, like I have this now, like I go once a week, I go to like buy food off the, you know, the farmers will sneak into London and sell their stuff out of garages. And I talk to them, and I'm like, "You do realize this is like my only social interaction for the week? I hope I'm getting it right, and obviously I'm getting it wrong, right?" <laughs> when you say to people, "Am I doing this social interaction thing correctly?" Yeah. Uh, you know you're getting it wrong. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you know, they're the first people I have spoken to for a week who I'm not related to, right? Yeah. So I'm very keen. I've got a lot of thoughts, and uh, they've got sausages. And that's <laughs> the level of exchange between us. But what um, your there's one other book that you've written that um, I think's worth talking about in this particular time, which is the Arctic Camping, which is about kind of self reliance and. Um, not being beholden to kind of other people. Uh, and although it is a sort of book about how to camp, it is also a sort of personal memoir as well. It has shares some elements, I think, with self and I. Do you think I can... uh, yeah, myself and, and I kind of grew out of it um, because I was, I was interested in rites of passage because um, a lot of the camping movements that I'd researched, and there were a lot of camping movements in the 1920s, um, had all kind of, set up these movements in order to take young people through a rite of passage that would then inculcate them in the values of whoever was running the camp, whether it was socialists or free thinkers or fascists, right? And so I was interested in the rite of passage and I started thinking about my own rite of passage, which I'd undertaken with Will. And it was, although I wasn't an adolescent, it was a true rite of passage, which I detail in the book in which we go out swimming uh, to an, in the waters of a nuclear reactor. Uh, the, the waste pipes that the size well be a nuclear reactor and uh, afterwards we have a sort of giant bonfire and he renames me uh, so it's a classic rite of passage um, in which you know the individual is taken out to the borders of a territory um, under the guidance of a mentor that they undergo some difficult ritual and at the end of it they're brought back to life uh, with a different name and so I was interested in that dynamic which also underpins you know many it's a kind of deep narrative pattern that underpins our stories and i was thinking about that and that's where self and i came out of the camping book um, i'm sure that your children will also look at, back on those many camping holidays you went on as um, uh, numerous rites of passage 
<laughs> they talk about it a lot. They did like it. The thing was, and I've been writing some, I'm sort of working with, on another memoir. I've been writing about that period because it was a period of, because, of, you know, you knew, knew me then, quite considerable financial hardship, right? Yeah. And that was why we camped, because we were living in a, I had three young children. I, uh, we had no income. And so apart from like whatever freelance bits and bobs I could scrub together, um, we lived in this rented flat and we didn't have any outdoor space and it was unbearable. Like two of our children are one year apart. They were all really young and it was just really uh, relentless. So camping was the only way in which we could just get out of that that situation really and, and be outdoors and not spend any money, which we yeah. didn't have, you know. Um, so they, I think they're very fond about that. They don't remember, or two of them don't remember, like my financial anxieties, right. uh, my eldest daughter does, uh, which I feel sort of some remorse for. Um, the others don't really remember that side that side of it, um, and I because I have very keen memories of when you're that broke, um, just how much of your thought process is consumed with financial calculation, particularly if your income is irregular and you're trying to bring in like bits of money, like the aircraft you want to bring into land, you know, you're trying to coax them in, um, in the timetable, which you need to pay your bills. And I just, just now that I, I work as an academic now, so I have, I have regular income and I no longer have that cognitive load of constantly thinking about, uh, the money coming in and the money going out. And so what are you writing about at the moment? What's your, what's the current memoir that you're writing? Well, I wanted to write something. Um, the working title changes every day, but it's called the the new normal, and um, it's about austerity. It begins with austerity when I was lost work and and um, I was in the situation that I just described, and I started going to job interviews, and I would go to like two or three job interviews a week, uh, just to really get a lot of shit off my chest uh, <laughs> with these people. Uh, I wasn't. Because I, I, I would get, re- I would get really confused because they had very pretentious job adverts. They would, they were advertising for like creative consultants. So when you get there, and it would be like, you know, they wanted me to to do something on like the virtual shopping channel or something ridiculous. And um, they were just very comic scenarios for all each of these job interviews. They gave me a window into what the future was going to be like, because all the positions were new positions that had been created to function in the emerging economy. And so each was a little portal that I could see what was coming down the pipe for us. So in out of the same with self and I, I wrote that book because it was a microcosm of time and experience. I didn't do that because I think either myself or, or Will are like, you know, vitally interesting people. It's because I thought those experiences were, were representative of a macro trend that um, lots of other people could connect with. And that particular self and I, it was about ambition and literary ambition specifically that I wanted to write about. And this, uh, through these microcosm, first of these job interviews, and then my later work where my science fiction actually starts to be, people start to create digital products based on my science fiction. I end up getting involved with all sorts of different characters. Um, that just felt like a, a, a macrocosm that's going on now. So the memoir takes us right the way up to probably, I would say, just the beginning of lockdown. And then I'll, I, right. I don't know, that will be a discrete time period. And are you still camping? I am not really camping at the moment, Matthew. I'm very disappointed to say that. But it's I just don't, now that we've had jobs, right? <laughs> now that we have jobs, it's a lot of work. And um, I haven't quite got round to it. 
Because the, um, the, the, the wonderful thing about that is that the, the you never could drive, and Cathy couldn't drive either, could she? So you always used to have to go by train. Um, and I'm always amused by the thought of you with that kind of giant, the, the largest backpack I've ever seen in my life. Uh, you're like a large person already. The kind of gigantic jack, uh, backpack on you uh, as you cart the family off to um, Scotland in the middle of February. Um, yeah, it was just um, absolutely lunatic. I because you're describing about I read this in the book, but you know I would get in the bus outside my house I, with, as you say, giant backpack. Kathy, who's five foot tall, would also have a, a massive backpack, which I describe in the book as which she looked like a woman backing into a wardrobe. <laughs> uh, you know, we had a push chair. Uh, you know, little children, and yeah, going going on the public transport system in London. I mean, it, we are Londoners. We know we were breaking every single rule uh, by doing that. But yeah, we had to get out. We absolutely had to get out. Um, but yeah, not having a car did make it more challenging than perhaps was necessary. And I, I knew, you know, my experiences of Glastonbury weren't really pleasant. You know, taking three young children to Glastonbury. Which you know uh, was was too difficult, I think, in retrospect, for yeah. uh, for any enjoyment to be gleaned from it. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, children at Glastonbury don't mix at all. Um, but I also remember seeing you. Well, there was a year where we were both in the Lake District at the same time, and you were camping there, and you were camping on a on a campsite that was absolutely in the middle of nowhere, uh, but looked completely idyllic. And I remember feeling jealous of the fact that you were you were all there as a family um, in this kind of spectacular yes. wild place. Yeah, I mean, it was that particular holiday. Uh, it was tough because it was hailing. I remember, and I had to set a tarpaulin up to to cook from the hailstone. And actually, I'd had to I'd gone to Manchester beforehand to speak at a science fiction convention with all the gear in the car, right? And um, I parked the car up for two days. And when I what I didn't realise is that it had been broken into, and oh, no. so they, they, they'd only been able to get into the front of the car and they'd stolen all the sleeping bags and all the Easter eggs that I had collected for the children. Oh. But I didn't realise this until I had set the tent up and it was like six o'clock at night. And I we I realised that we had no gear to sleep in. Or, and so that was a particularly hard night. Oh, God. What did you do then? Yeah. I, I drove around the Lake District at great speed and eventually ended up in a travel lodge uh, from about 60 miles west of where I started out with the, with the family. And then uh, I only realized we'd be broken into when, you know, it was quite, we were in despair in the travel lodge and Kath said, you know, well, why don't you go and get the Easter eggs and cheer them up? <laughs> and at that point we realized <laughs> that the Easter eggs had been nicked too. Oh, God, God. Well, on that miserable note, um, <laughs> I'd just like to say thanks for being a guest. What is everyone else up to for the rest of the day? Will and Nina, what are you doing for the rest of the day? I'm preparing uh, some on la online launch activity for our new series that we're um, we were supposed to be having an event at Rough Trade East on Thursday, so it's happening online now basically. So I'm preparing all that. What about Will? I'll be uh, reading um, and um, yeah, the, moving the proverbial um, uh, v, putting the proverbial V into a poem and then taking it out again. The usual day's work. And Gail, how about you? Um, I'll be selling more books online. Come and buy them from me. Well, we will all, I'm sure we'll all leave this um, 
this episode and go straight on to the um, London Review uh, bookshop website and, and buy books. What about you, Matthew? What, what are you doing for the rest of the day? Um, well, my eldest daughter might maybe do some personal training. She's been my personal trainer, so um, she'll she'll be making me lift some weights. And then I'll probably carry on planning a Dungeons and Dragons adventure for my younger children because I've got back into that in lockdown. Oh, have you? How how did you get back into yeah. it? What have you? What was your what was your entry back into it? Have you got like a book or something, or how did you start doing? I, yeah, I have the old books, and um, but they're they're quite um, archaic. Some of the rules. Um, I mean, the, my books are so old that you can you can actually with a bad dice roll create a dwarf with a urinary with a urinary infection <laughs> um, so I, I needed some rule I need some books with fewer rules right I mean you don't want to have to um, have congenital medical problems for your uh, your dwarves and elves so I've got new books and um, I've, I've even in the state of lockdown even managed to get my wife involved uh, so my ambition is that we'll come out of this lockdown and my wife will be a ninth level cleric <laughs> Well, that's a yeah, wonderful ambition to have. Okay, so thanks everyone for being on the show. We're going to um, we're going to end uh, end the episode with a track from uh, Jeanette Niandaya, um called Masson Mambobe, uh, and that is because for the rest of the day I am going to be um, my kind of lockdown um, recreation has been trying to play funk guitar. So um, JustinsGuitar.com. Um, I'm on like class six, I think of that. Um, uh, yeah, learning funk guitar. So here is a little bit of funk guitar to see us out. Thank you, everyone, so much for taking part, and thank you, Hugh, for producing us. Cheers, all. Right. Cheers, Matthew. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right. Thanks, everyone.